for a lot of software leaders, we want to grow our companies to become a unicorn. That is a billion-dollar company. How do you do that, though? From the beginning and even when you get to kind of those middle stages, once you've reached product market fit, how do you continue to grow your company, yourself as a person, as a leader, so that you can reach that unicorn status? Well, guess what? Roland Seablink, he's done it three times. He knows exactly what to do and exactly how to make it happen so that you can become the unicorn. He came in and shared exactly the steps to follow. You're definitely going to want to listen to this one. Welcome to Scale Your SaaS, the podcast that gives you proven techniques and formulas for boosting your revenue and achieving your dream exit. Brought to you by a guy who's done just that multiple times. Here's your host, Matt Wallach. Hey, welcome to Scale Your SaaS. Super excited to have you here. My name is Matt, and I am here to help you do that exactly. Scale your SaaS. Let's grow. Let's make sure we understand how to generate a lot of leads. Let's close a lot of deals. Let's scale our team so that they can be successful doing all that fun stuff for us. If you want those things, definitely subscribe to the show right now. Hit that button. That way you'll get notified of all the new episodes we have where we have incredible creators and innovators who tell you exactly how to scale your SaaS. And one of those incredible people is here with us today. I've got Roland Seablink with me. Roland, how are you doing? Hello, Matt. It is such an honor to be on this podcast. I've been looking forward to this interview for a long time. Likewise, I was so excited to be able to talk with you. I know you've done a lot of great stuff, and I, I'm really looking forward to sharing your knowledge with the world. But first, let me make sure everybody knows who you are, Roland. So a little bit about Roland. Mm -hmm. He's the founder and CEO at Midstage Institute. The Midstage Institute, it helps founding teams of midstage startups maintain maximum momentum so that they can keep growing while keeping their culture. And Roland himself, he's a three-time tech founder with a profound understanding of the challenges inherent in scaling a business. He's a momentum facilitator and coach for fast growing startups. He brings 30 years of experience in software and SaaS startups and is a former landslide winner of the Silicon Valley Founder Showcase. He is the man. He knows his stuff and I'm so glad to have him here. Roland, thanks for being here. Oh, you're too kind, Matt. <laughs> well, I want to hear about what you're doing lately and, and what's coming up for you. Can you tell us? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you said, uh, our focus is really to help mid-stage companies, typically software companies as well, um, you know, going through that treacherous mid-stage, right? So typically we define that as from the moment you have some first signs of true product market fit until you reach product market dominance, right? And a lot of founders know the first, mm -hmm. but many of them kind of assume that that's the end of the journey or like once you reach product market fit, then that's basically all the success you need. I might even say the ones with the more technical backgrounds, uh, you know, they get an itch to start developing the second product. But what we found is that really the journey is only beginning once you got some inkling of product market fit, because now it's time to start, instead of exploring, you have to start exploiting that product market fit and start racing towards actually occupying that market sooner than all the competitors out there could possibly catch up with you. We'll be right back game changer in lead generation, lead feeder. One thing that's super frustrating when I work with clients is driving traffic to their website, but then not knowing who those visitors are. You can't tell who these companies are, but guess what? There is a tool and it's changing the game and supercharging your lead gen. It's called lead feeder. Now imagine having the power to identify companies visiting your website, track their behavior in real time and seamlessly integrate it all with your CRM. Lead feeder is not just a tool. This thing is your secret weapon for efficient and targeted 
limited lead engagement. Now, what sets Lead Feeder apart? It's the ability to provide detailed insights into visitor behavior, helping your sales team prioritize efforts and close deals faster. This thing's got customizable notifications, lead scoring, GDPR compliance. It's loaded. Lead Feeder is really changing the game. If you're ready to revolutionize your approach to leads and deals, head over to leadfeeder.com for your free demo today. That's L-E-A-D-F-E-E-D-E-R.com. Don't miss out on the future of successful lead generation with Lead Feeder. And we're back. I think that's just it right there. So many times I'm talking with people who are like, well, we're doing well. We've, we're ahead of the market. We're doing great. I think we're fine. And I say, hold up. In software, things happen so fast and somebody behind you could come up and catch you and pass you if you're not paying attention, if you're not continuing to grow. So that happens all the time, doesn't it? It does. And I think a few founders are actually aware of the basic economics of uh, software and tech companies in general, which is that ultimately the technology investment that you can make drives so much value that the bigger you are, the more you become dominant in your space. So, uh, you know, the, the, the writer of Crossing the Chasm calls this, ultimately every sector ends up with one gorilla, uh, two monkeys and a bunch of chimps, right? Uh, you know, and so essentially, uh, you have to put everything in your power to work to become that one gorilla in your space. And if you don't believe me, just ask around, like, what do you think, you know, what comp company comes to mind when you say search? What company comes to mind when you say CRM? What company comes to mind when you say uh, operating systems? And it's very clear there's always one gigantic winner. Yeah, that's so true. Great point on that. I think it's super important to get there. I, I want to go back, though. What mm -hmm. led you to start Midstage Institute? Yeah, good question. So I've been very lucky, as you said, to have been a founder several times, but also to have been early employees in companies that uh, three time turned out to become a unicorn. Uh, so three successive unicorn journeys every time, uh, lucky enough to be among the 10 or so first employees and to see it grow to over a thousand in, in just about three years time. Wow. And, and I think I'm pretty unique in that. I've been very lucky. Um, and also I, I found myself even in the earl earliest ones, when I was quite a bit younger, uh, to always get into some kind of a position of coaching the founder slash CEO, starting to realize how lonely that position is, um, and also starting to feel like how difficult it is to actually uh, get through that treacherous mid-stage. So after having done that three times and having founded a few companies of my own, I felt like my true strength in actually is in selling those, not selling, in sharing those stories and experiences and basically help people see ahead of the curve that typically they cannot yet because it's invariably the first time that they are on that unicorn journey. And I've done it a few times before. Yeah, definitely. And you, I think you're being a bit modest when you say you were lucky. And, and I do agree there's a little bit of luck, but there is a common element here that you were there each time helping to make it happen. And so I'm going to say you're amazing. So I want to understand, though, what does it take? I mean, you've had this perspective multiple times. So you're probably seeing some, some common elements here. What does it take to start and grow a company that becomes a unicorn? Yeah, so I think most founders are aware there's two big sides to the business. One is the product engineering side, where, of course, you need to have an attractive product and keep up with the market changes, you know, be able to resolve bugs in time, all that stuff. 
But what I think they often miss in that uh, is that real dominance of that uh, field. How can you maybe hone in on an even smaller target group, but get that target group loving your product and sticky with your product so that you mm. cannot, that they don't move to a different uh, product, right? Um, I think on the go to market side, I really use that crossing the chasm framework a lot uh, it, throughout the journey that we do with founders because um, many uh, intuitively like to sell to those early adopters, startup founders like themselves. You know, the dirty little secret of all the Y Combinator startups is that almost all of their first clients are other Y Combinator companies because it's just a brotherly thing to do, let's say, right? Um, yep. And uh, at some point in time, there's just not enough startups around anymore. And then you have to go through that difficult stage of how do I now actually start targeting the mainstream market? And what does that mean, not just for my sales motion, but also for my product and the kind of features I offer? And, uh, you know, can I psychologically deal with maybe not being the coolest company on the block anymore, but, uh, you know, actually becoming more solid, more robust all the while trying to avoid, of course, becoming like a big bureaucracy where nothing happens anymore. Um, and then, then I think the three dimensions that are usually a little bit under um, uh, exposed uh, that we often focus on in the background, I'll go through them fast. Uh, one is the business model, like how do you actually think you're going to be returning cash to investors? Of course, in the beginning, you can kind of ignore that question, but you better have a pretty good idea about how in the long term you're going to be creating superior cash flows and profits. And many founders have no idea um actually buy into the vc narrative of like well just get more and more funding not realizing that what that really means is because we want to get your company from under you right uh <laughs> that's a very uh, good thing to keep in mind um the two others are um you know what mode do you set in the company think of this as like a, a proxy for culture like what is the actual uh challenge that you pose to the workforce at large is it just sales or is it like win any deal at what any price or at some point in time they start shifting into like well we have to follow some guidelines because otherwise everything falls through the cracks right and how do you get to that perfect yin and yang of like enough energy and enough uh, gung-ho uh, sales motion, but at the other side, also enough uh, process on robustness to actually deliver on all that the company requires and to keep scaling it. And the last one, the hardest one, is how do you as a founder actually need to change because your company requires different things from you as you grow? Mm -hmm. And, and that's, a, I love, that's a really big one. It is. And I think, you know, like if you start with that, then many founders are re naturally resistant to it because, you know, their, their starting point is like, how do I manage my employees better? How do I get people mm. to finally do what I want them to do? Um, kind of a bit of an autocratic mode, maybe in the beginning, which is appropriate when you're in a garage stage, let's say, right? Uh, mm -hmm. but it's not appropriate anymore when you suddenly have a 50, 100, 200 people reporting to you. Uh, and you need to learn totally different styles. Um, Ra Rachel Turner, the Founder Survival Guide is a great resource in this, and she talks about moving from a brave warrior to a considered architect and then ultimately even to become the wise monarch. Uh, mm -hmm. And how can you learn those new styles? How can you add them to your quiver, let's say, uh, as a founder? That, that psychological dimension is probably the hardest not to crack. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, I love hearing that because a lot of people don't realize the evolution you need to go through as a leader 
as your company grows, there's so many different changes. I talk with a lot of my clients. I help them grow. I help them scale. And then they say, wow, my, my day-to-day has changed so much in just the last few months. It's crazy. If mm-hmm. you're in a high-growth mode, it, it can really shift, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think psychologically, it's really, really hard to ask people to change the very thing that made them successful in their minds, right? Which is typically an early stage hustle, very quick decisions, constantly changing uh, perspective until something sticks, right? Very appropriate. If you didn't do that in the early stage, you would never even get anywhere, right? But at some point in time, you need to start becoming aware that that's not your recipe for success anymore. So how do you give that up and learn new skills? Or if you prefer, would you rather have somebody else come in? But frankly, I'm not a believer in replacing a founder CEO. I like to keep them in charge for as long as possible. But of course, the condition is that they need to be open to learning and developing their skill sets and maybe changing their profile altogether over time, as you say. Yeah, I totally agree. So can you give us some things you were able to help with? How can founders identify these habits and and, and let go of old habits that maybe got them there without losing that innovative edge? Yes, and that's that's a really important point that I will also want to back up that, you know, the the big uh, picture here is all about how do we get the company to be more robust? How do we get the leader to be more robust, but without losing that innovative edge? So how do we avoid them becoming the big boring corporation that they all fled in the first place, right? Um, yep. So it's it, that's why I think I really think of it as this like mid-stage where it's kind of like an adolescence for companies. You know, if you still behave like a little kid and throw tantrums all the time, you're not going to be very successful anymore. Uh, but if you start behaving like a, middle-aged adult uh, right away when you're still figuring out who you are and what you're good at, you're also not going to be very successful. So it's really like a different set of prescriptions that works the best uh, in this stage. And that's what we try to teach people. I love it. So can you help us and share some specific strategies that startups can implement to accelerate profitability without compromising long-term sustainability? Yeah, I'm guessing this question comes from the change in the investment landscape uh, more than anything else. Uh, of course, most software startups until two years ago would have been able to uh, attract quite um, quite good funding so that they didn't have to worry about profitability yet. Uh, now that's not so easy anymore. But I also think that that's actually in a way a good thing because it pushes forward that question about the business model to earlier. And you actually have a chance to uh, you know, keep more of your company than if you would have followed the old VC model where you get addicted to the cash flow and, you know, uh, ultimately you end up at IPO with less than 1% of the stock, which is some of the uh, cautious uh, stories out there, right? Yeah. So to answer your question, how to do this, um, I think uh, you need to understand very well uh, what is actually the cost of running the business and what is all the what I call almost like speculative investment in future growth. And most startups, I'm convinced once they have a degree of product market fit, they are fundamentally profitable. They could be very profitable if only they just kept selling their current product and, you know, basically kept that on automatic mode, right? The problem Mm -hmm. is that the model has been so much about, well, you need to show ever more growth, you need to show more products, you need to build a whole stack that the company does tons of investments in money, but also in in the executive energy uh, in all those growth directions, typically running 10, 20 at the same time, trying all those experiments, still trying to see what sticks, right? 
And there's a huge cost associated with that that typically does not pay off at all. So in these lower growth uh, times when it's harder to attract investment, I would be far more curious about, you know, what is actually our bread and butter? Where can we actually um, you know, already have a, a profitable business underneath at the foundation, let's say. And then, yeah, of course, you should still invest in some growth, but then pick two or three dimensions, not 30. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that's totally a, a great way to think about it. So if 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 software leaders out there are trying to grow, what mistakes are you seeing? What are the biggest mistakes these leaders are making around growth? I think it's really the undisciplined nature of pursuing growth. So trying everything under the sun to see what sticks and then never sticking with it long enough to actually make it work. So I see that a lot with marketing channels. I see that a lot with the different segments that you target, uh, sometimes even with different product features, right? And I think on the product side, many people do not uh, realize that what makes your product the most successful over time is if you keep control over it and if you have a relatively limited feature set that, you know, you can actually keep saying to customers, well, we decided not to do that. Too many companies become very dependent on one, two, three core customers that were basically mm -hmm. when the customer says, I'd like you to add that button, then it's yes and amen, right? Those are the kind of products that really miss the mark over time because they cannot satisfy uh, lots of people anymore. There's maybe 10, 20 people that use it intensively um, and all the rest say, well, this is bloated swear. I, I don't need that anymore. And so keeping control over your product, uh, honing in on the actual value that you're providing for the most important targets group that you have, not just the whole world out there, that I think is the right approach. So I think it just kind of goes back. This is something I work with my clients on right at the beginning as you're getting started before you get to that mid-stage level. It's, hey, learn your market, know who your ideal customer is and aim directly at that customer with your product, with your marketing messaging, with your sales process, aim at that person. And Absolutely. we shouldn't change that. You're saying like even mid-stage, don't forget about that perfect fit ideal customer. Don't try and be all things to all people. Nail that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, once you the sales really start taking off, which is typically when you have breached some degree of the mainstream market, then, of course, the model in your mind is that it should be like uh, bowling pins where you hit one and then later on you hit the second and you hit the third. Right. It's kind of like a chessboard that way or, or maybe like the risk game where you gradually conquer more and more of your your time. Right. But I think mm -hmm. the whole focus on, on TAM, Samsung in early stage startup is really misguiding founders uh, because then they have an incentive to start thinking of like, oh, let's boil the ocean. Let's uh, let's conquer this $10 billion market, uh, which really leads to lots of wasted efforts and never getting to any penetration where customers actually start using word of mouth, start uh, recommending you to to, to others, uh, which is really what, what makes you uh, the most successful. Um, I think the, the the positioning book by April Dunford is really good in that she always says, like, you know, your target group should for this year should not be bigger than what you need in order to make your sales targets. So that's actually way smaller in most cases than what many founders think of. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And April's brilliant. So I'm glad you mm -hmm. brought her up because that's really important. But I want to ask you, so as you're working with your your clients and even thinking back to growing your companies, what are some of the key indicators that signal a startup strategy is sharply focused and aligned with its goals? 
One question we always ask the, the executive teams when we interview them right before a workshop is, can you state your strategy in one sentence? That is still the best possible indicator I found of, you know, having a sharply focused strategy. Uh, there's also the old Dilbert comic that uh, from people for of a certain age uh, where, you know, Dilbert picks up the phone. People say, can you do this? And he's like, uh, and that's a company without a strategy. A company with a strategy would say, no, we don't do that. Wow. Cool. So like, strategy like is about choices, it right? It's it's really about you know making a choice and daring to live with that choice. And I think that's where a lot of people really fail because they kind of want to be popular for everyone. Mm, very true. So what were some of the things that you did in your companies that helped you get to, to where they were? Um, it really depended on the specific situation, but I think the red thread was almost always to uh, connect the product organization much closer to the uh, marketing and sales organization so that mm. it didn't feel like different silos, but that we had more of an understanding of what does the customer really want and what can we deliver and how to reconcile that dilemma, right? Um, and so I think one of the most powerful things you can do is have a bit of a program where even engineers sometimes listen into calls or sit with the customer. Of course, not to resolve all their problems on the spot, but more like, you know, to get exposure and to realize that, you know, they're all just people like you and me and, and not this kind of ideal that you see on a cardboard somewhere, right? Um, same, same way the other way around when sometimes you want some, uh, some customer focused people, some like sales, customer success, also get to know the technology a little bit better and see what the constraints are and why resolving this one request for this one customer might actually uh, decrease the value of the overall product for hundreds or maybe even hundreds of thousands of other customers out there. Yeah, I agree. And I, I, I'm surprised at how many teams don't connect engineering and marketing and sales well enough. And it, it, it's, it's really bad, like you said, when it's siloed. And as you're talking about that mid-stage, as you navigate through that mid-stage and continue to grow, the silos become easier to happen. It's harder to get those teams to make sure that they're in alignment. And I found that the most successful companies do keep that alignment. So it's great. Yeah. And one, uh, one key lever for that, Matt, is... Um, when we come in and help those executive teams is not just to coach the CEO, but also to have those quarterly sessions with the entire executive team, but to keep those resolutely cross-functional. The question is not what is marketing going to do? What is engineering going to do? What is finance going to do? The question is, what do we need to do as a company? What are our top five priorities for this uh, quarter or for the year, whatever the case may be? And just I often even ignore, I know very well who's, who has which function. You can usually already tell by the type of person, right? To be honest. Um, but, uh, in the end, it doesn't matter. Like I will sometimes purposely ask a marketing question to a head of engineering or the, uh, the other way around, you know, because I say, you know, when you come in here, your job is not to uh, represent your department or to, to defend your people. Your job is to learn to think like a CEO. And uh, mm -hmm. it cannot all be on that one guy or girl in the room that is supposed to bang your heads together and try to make you come to compromise. That's something you can learn for yourselves. Yeah, absolutely. Very, very true. Okay, so as we wrap up here, Roland, this is a ton of great stuff. What one piece of advice would you give to software leaders who are entering this stage and saying, okay, I need to figure out how can we grow as a company? How can I grow as a person? 
Um, I would still say start with uh, creating a bit more self-awareness. Uh, and that sounds very soft. I know a lot of people resist that. But really, if you can uh, become, again, can learn to be more open to some feedback about yourself, maybe ask a coach to do a 360 survey of people around you. Uh, also, board members can be helpful in that uh, regard. Learning to be open to feedback and then independently to decide whether you want to act on that or not, that's perfectly fine, right? But most people are so much in pitching mode all the time that they mm. have not learned to listen and they do not actually pick up the, the crucial information that they need to adapt to. And that would be my, my core advice. It's definitely great advice. I would echo that as well. Hope everybody takes note of it. Roland, this has been awesome. Thank you so much for coming in and sharing your knowledge with us. It's really, really great stuff. How can our audience learn more about you and Midstage Institute? Yeah, so we've uh, made a page available with all uh, the resources, some of the which I've mentioned in this uh, interview, and it's at midstage.org slash thrive. And so just going to that URL, you'll see not my contact information. Please connect on LinkedIn as well, uh, but also some of the downloads that we have, uh, some of the core blog posts that uh, that explain everything, and hopefully also this uh, this podcast video at some point in time. Okay, perfect. Yeah, I agree. And we'll make sure we put that stuff into the show notes as well. So if you're listening, you'll be able to grab it there. But Roland, this has been fantastic. Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, much, uh, much appreciated. Thank you for the invitation. It's been my pleasure and a big honor. The honor is mine. I really appreciate it. Everybody out there, thank you for being here. Thanks for watching and listening. Make sure that you are subscribed. As I mentioned earlier, you don't want to miss other amazing guests like Roland sharing all of their knowledge with you. And then we're looking for reviews. So if you think this is really helpful, please post a review. Let us know that this was great stuff. That way other people will see it and they'll be notified of the show and how great it is. So thank you. Appreciate it. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Thanks for listening to Scale Your SaaS. For more help on finding great leads and closing more deals, go to mattwallick.com.